Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this episode is Jared, who does a little bit of everything. He's one of the driving forces behind the award-winning genre site Porno Kitsch. Jared also runs Jurassic London, a not-for-profit genre fiction publisher. Jared's annual reviews of the David Gemmel shortlists are a highlight of my year, so I'm hoping that you will keep them up, because I really do enjoy them. Oh, thank you very much. Um, knowing that someone actually reads them is very, very important to me. They're like my way of keeping track of epic fantasy without having to read epic fantasy anymore, because that's kind of difficult for me these days. Fair enough. We are going to talk a little bit about sword and sorcery and that subgenre. But first, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into science fiction and fantasy, what your experience with the genre and some of the titles that have connected you to it? Sure, um, with with pleasure. Well, I, I'm a lifer. Um, I grew up on you know Lloyd Alexander and Joan Aiken and the Redwall books, mm-hmm. and I remember it was actually my my mom was getting her hair cut, and I was sitting there. Um, I think you know playing one of the Lone Wolf books or something like that, and. The woman cutting my mom's hair said, oh, if you like that sort of thing, you should try Dragonlance. Uh-huh. And I must have, right? And so, I, I mean, I was probably 10, 11. And I mean, I read the Dragonlance Chronicles tell that, I mean, the covers literally fell off. I mean, I, I carried those three books around with me from state to state, from holiday to holiday, and, you know, had them all completely memorized. Um, but... It, it's you know it's one of those great gateway fantasies that takes you from children's fantasy to ostensibly adult fantasy, and mm-hmm. once you move onto that shelf of the bookshop, um, you're you're sort of hooked for life. Yeah, I think that they were a my first away camp, like where you know overnight camp. The Dragonlance Chronicles came with me. <laughs> that that was a really good way to identify myself to the rest of the cabin. <laughs> Yes. And the thing is about, you know, discovering books like that and having your entire life changed is that everyone else around you winds up reading them, you know, by default. I mean, my, my poor mother must have heard the plot of the Dragonlance Chronicles about <laughs> 50,000 times. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell my parents that by naming the cat Kit, I was naming the cat after Kitchiara, but but I totally was. That is fantastic, and I was very proud of myself for uh, <laughs> for for pulling one over on them. Um, and for those who are nodding along and saying to themselves, "Ah, oh, yes, Dragonlance," and who don't know that Jared and Mavesh are doing a Dragonlance reread at Tor.com, I I enjoy it every week, as you guys seem to both. Enjoy the fact that, that there are ways that Dragonlance is silly, but also kind of take seriously and engage with why it it was so popular and why it hooked so many of us. Good. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you're enjoying it. They are. It is. I mean, it's sort of amazing that even even now, years later, rereading those books chapter by chapter, um, they're still a lot of fun, which I think says a lot about them. Yeah. So Lloyd Alexander, Joe Nakin, Redwall, Dragonlance. You've read a few other things since then. Yeah, one or two. Um, but really, I think, I mean, I probably peaked with Dragonlance. My wife and I are both really just big geeks and have always done our best to get caught up with whatever is, is going on and whatever's out on the shelves. 
we aren't just genre readers, um, but that does seem to be our heartland. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about sword and sorcery, the subgenre, and and I feel like a lot of ink gets spilled about what are subgenres and how do we define them and how do we categorize them and should we even bother putting energy into them and and they're all just marketing categories anyway or maybe they're not but i i feel like there is something to the notion that and i i see i i tend to think of sword and sorcery which i i feel like i mostly skipped as i was reading along as being sort of more episodic and in contrast epic fantasy not something that builds up to a grand battle with the dark evil but it's it's still really, really interesting and engaging and often very character-driven. And I am curious how useful you think the category is and how close to how you think of it I have I have hit. Because I, as I say, I think I mostly sort of bypassed it and kept hearing, well, if you would like to read Sword and Sorcery, you should read Conan and Crawford and those sorts of things. Oh, definitely. You know, in, in preparing for the show, I was sort of jotting down books and piling things up and thinking, oh, God, I need to look through all those. Um, and I, I've probably... Um, you know, I, I'm not deeply embedded in, say, Robert Howard fandom, um, which, which exists, and, and bless them for it. I, I definitely have read quite a bit of this stuff, and it, it's... I think you, just touching on what you, what you said about almost the format of Sword and Sorcery defining it, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, it's a really, really interesting subgenre of fantasy, because it did originate with this pulp tradition, this, you know, this pre-Tolkien, the misty days before we had Tolkien, <laughs> when the primary source, I suppose, of fantasy fiction were, were these pulp magazines. And so it's, um, it's a genre that's almost driven by the format in that way. And in some sense, I'm not sure it lived particularly well past the advent of, of the, the mass market novel. Mm-hmm. But it's also a genre that you can see has extended into other media. It's in video games. It's in movies. It's in television. It's, it's gone absolutely everywhere. And now that publishing has fragmented again and sort of allowed for pulp-like formats um, online, I, I think we're seeing a bit of a resurgence, which, which is great. Yeah, I guess I, I hadn't... I mean, I know it mostly as novelizations of a collection of short stories, all, all the stuff I know is is the stuff from long ago, and I'm curious where you're seeing it now. Are the, are the serial novel, novellas that are coming out, are those of that? God, so no one really has made the serial work yet, have they? I mean, you think that that's the thing that's going to come back now that everyone has their, their e-readers and mobile phones and things like that, but no one's really cracked it. Some of the sword and sorcery you're seeing right now, I mean, just in thinking about stuff for today, I, I just read a one of the, the winners of a self-published fantasy competition that was sort of hosted by Mark Lawrence. And actually, I, quite a few of the finalists in that are proper old-school sword and sorcery, like directly stemming from the, from the Robert E. Howard tradition, which, which is kind of amazing. And then at the same time, you have you know, video games like Bloodborne, which are very pulpy, very sword and sorcery-ish. Mm-hmm. You've got Gail Simone resurrecting um, Red Sonja. Not, you know, we're going to have Conan back in the theaters um, this year, next year. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is even returning to the role. Yeah, and, and it's just—it's astounding. I mean, you've—you um, know—that's—that's that's four different media, I think. And 
this genre is, you know, none of these things I would say are Game of Thrones style bestsellers. You know, none of them are going to be number one at WH Smith's or, or top of the New York Times list or anything like that. But it is just a really persistent genre that has managed to linger on in every shape and size. And that's kind of great. We're going to take a break now for some short fiction reviews from Charles Pesor. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Imagine if the rhyme just sort of ended there. Imagine that we are left to fill in the rest. Today I want to focus on stories that are framed as falls, as great falls, that focus on the idea of falling, of seeing the ground approach, of knowing that there is no parachute, that rescue is unlikely. While not an inherently speculative premise, it's an idea that speculative fiction tackles well, and a framing technique that can bring a lot of weight and power to an already well-crafted story. I want to start with What Glistens Back by Sunny Moraine, which appeared in Lightspeed Magazine in November 2014. This is really the first time I remember reading a story that centered on falling, and it devastated me. I mean, it completely wrecked me. It's about an accident, as we'll find so many of these stories are, and a man named Sean falling toward what he thinks is a boring planet. The accident means that he's pretty surely going to die, and it's even more emotionally wrenching because he's still in contact with his partner and husband, Eric, and the desperation to save him and the growing realization that it might not be happening, well, it's not the easiest of stories to read. Part of why I love this work, though, and part of why I still think about it even now, is because of this frame of falling. It makes everything immediate and important and tragic and powerful to feel that situation where there's this inevitability, and yet you want to believe that there's going to be a solution, that there's going to be a way for it to turn out happy and safe for everyone. Well, it plays with our desire for a happy ending. And it does a great job of twisting what that might be. It's a story that in some ways is about exploration and science and discovery, the risks and the realities. And like many of the stories that use this frame, it features a very close and in this case very intimate relationship. Not all of the stories include characters in contact with someone as they fall, but I do think it gives this piece that added depth. That, the, that this isn't about just the person falling, but also the person left behind. The person desperate to save their loved one and unable to do so. It's a story that still gets to me and remains one of my personal favorite pieces from 2014. Um, moving forward chronologically and jumping a bit, uh, the next story is The Sky Falling by Anton Rose from Terraform's October 2016 content. This story takes place on Earth, and in doing so focuses on a very different set of themes than what glistens back. Here we have a slightly dystopic society that is de de dependent on these large atmospheric generators to keep things overcast, to mitigate the effects of global warming. The main character is a maintainer of one of these floating generators, and is also a climate refugee. And where the last story uses the frame of falling to capture the moment when two characters are pulled apart, when the gravity of their situation takes hold and refuses to let go, this story takes a more planetary view, looking at the main character and his thoughts following an accident that leaves him hurtling toward Earth. Here we get this feeling of a generational change as he 
thinks about his daughter and how things can be poised on a tipping point, the climate damaged and catastrophic and total apocalypse just a moment away. The story looks at how we try to care for our future, for those who will come after. The setting of the story imagines an Earth that is still punting on climate, that is still treating the symptoms and not the cause, even in the face of rising water levels, even in the face of dangerous heat. The story reminds us that we're already near the edge, and if we wait too long, it will only be a small step before we teeter over into the abyss. It's another powerful use of the idea of falling. And speaking of one small step, my next recommendation is One Giant Leap by Jay Workhauser, which appeared at Strange Horizons in November of 2016. This one is set on Venus and, like the last, focuses on a parent-child relationship. And like what glistens back, this one also features communication between a person falling toward the surface of Venus uh, with a member of their team. Unlike the last story, though, this time the person falling is the child, and the person they're talking to is their father. And instead of being about dangerous climate change, the story seems to focus a bit more on the theme of expectations and love and familial respect. The main character here has followed his father, who is a high-ranking official in charge of the Venus Project, in hopes of proving himself. He wants to earn his father's love and respect, which has always been just out of reach. And, of course, a simple accident means that they have precious little time to come to some sort of understanding about everything. Like in What Glistens Back, the direct dialogue between the characters increases the panic, the desperation, and like in that story, the fall here represents many things being cut short. Uh, the opportunity for any sort of future reconciliation or relationship is gone now, and it strips the characters of all their pretense and hesitation. The unnecessary falls away as the ground approaches, and the story shows how these men choose to face this ending. The gravity here is the gravity of expectation, of filial responsibility, and despite how much the main character tried to climb away from it, he couldn't escape, and in the end, it left him fulfilling the dreams of his father in a way that neither of them want, but in a way that's all that's left to them. Another aspect of these stories and of this frame that I mentioned earlier is that they all tend to be tragic. They're about hoping against the inevitable, about not having prepared, or having your preparations be made obsolete in the face of error, in the face of chance. Uh, it's what makes these stories difficult, I think, but also compelling, because these are stories about accepted risk that you never really considered real until you're falling, until that ground is approaching and you know there's an end in store. Which brings me to my very last story of today, Vernal Fall, by Edward Ashton from Flash Fiction Online's January 2017 issue. Here we find a man obsessed with a fall, but not his own. Here, like with the last two stories, the emphasis is on a parent-child relationship. The man in this story is a father who imagines himself jumping into a river to save his daughter from a waterfall, or maybe not to save her, just to be there with her, and maybe not even to be there with her, because it turns out that he was nowhere near this event. That he's, in cr that he's created this entire fantasy to live in, where his daughter falls, because he can't live with the fact that she died. Because he can't accept that he wasn't there and doesn't know how it happened. What she was thinking. It's a story that, unlike all the others, lives in this moment of falling, without the fall being real exactly. Here the frame allows the reader to understand 
what he's feeling of what has happened. That for the main character, he has become stuck in this moment of falling, never free from it because he can't reach the bottom, because it's a metaphorical space that allows him to punish himself. This is the shortest of the story so far, but I think it does a nice job of showing a different approach to the use of falling in fiction. Not just to add immediacy to the action, not just to add trage tragedy and inevitability, but to show that the point in all of these stories is the fall itself. We're not very concerned with the landing, with the after. Focusing on the fall allows the stories to, in essence, leave the readers weightless, suspended in the moment, and then suddenly, jarringly forced back into reality, into our own bodies, having to fill in that final scene, having to imagine it over and over again, and never quite having closure, because we never really see it. It's always something that the stories pull away from, because for the people falling, it ends really before you can see the aftermath, which is uncomfortable and terrifying and devastating when done right, and these stories do, I believe, a very fine job of it. But yeah, there you are, four stories that imagine falling, and we as readers are made into something like Humpty Dumpty, shattered and left to try and piece ourselves back together, knowing we're not going to be entirely successful. There's going to be bits missing afterward, but perhaps we'll be stronger for it. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Charles. And now, halfway through this episode seems like a good time to pause for a moment in order to define sword and sorcery. The definition to throw out there is um, Lynn Carter, who is sort of at the heart of it, um, at the heart of the whole sword and sorcery movement. I think even... I think actually Lieber coined the phrase, but Carter definitely ran with it. He had a definition. And I, I'm not sure it's right, but it is very interesting to have a definition from someone that was so embedded in what he was defining. So at the very least, it's what he thought he was doing. So his, um, his definition is that we call a story sword and sorcery when it is an action tale derived from the traditions of the pulp magazine adventure story Set in a land, age, or world of the author's invention, uh, milieu, milieu, why can I not pronounce that? Milieu? Yeah. Um, in yeah. which magic actually works and gods are real. A story, moreover, which pits a stalwart warrior in direct conflict with the forces of supernatural evil. I mean, I think that traditions of the pulp magazine adventure story has extended even more than Carter probably ever thought. He wrote this in 73, um, long before he would have thought about, you know, online serials or video games or, or that sort of thing. And it's interesting that, you know, in it we have supernatural evil and gods and magic and stalwart warriors all being taken at face value. So there's no, this is not um, anything besides secondary world fantasy. And there's no real there's no real mention of any sort of higher themes or uh, transcendental meaning. It's just this is an action tale in which um, you know one thing is in direct conflict with another. It's mm -hmm. a it's story in its purest form. They're definitely character driven. They're very um, they're sort of vignettes. You know, every story does is a little glimpse into something. One small conflict, one small episode. I also think. And I, I'm going back to Robert Howard here. There's something really fascinating about the fact that this pre-Tolkien, pre-C.S. Lewis fiction, they didn't have those higher levels of meaning 
like Lewis and Tolkien brought to the fantasy genre. Maybe mm-hmm. not brought, but you know, um, I don't know, made embiggened in the fantasy genre. <laughs> <laughs> but in Sword and the Sorcery, you know, the entire point of Howard, if you can say there's a point at all, is is that there's nothing that what you see is what you get. That and, I, and I'm not saying that these stories are meant to be read superficially. Just that that's what their thesis was. Is, you know, you have Conan ranting about how actually this is the world we live in, it doesn't make a lot of sense at times. You know, the world is a bit barbaric, the world is totally chaotic, like, let's just, let's just go on and face it. And it's a bit like H.P. Lovecraft talking about how the, the greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. You have um, Howard and these sword and sorcery authors saying, actually, the meaning is that there is no meaning. There's not a greater good and evil, there's just these tiny episodic adventures and an almost living day-to-day in a fantasy world. And I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that hadn't occurred to me, and that is really interesting. And you can't do that anymore. Like, ever since Lewis and Tolkien and everything in fantasy had to stand for something and everything had to have a greater sense of meaning. And mm-hmm. even now, where we have, you know, where we have Grimdark, everything still stands for something. It's just maybe not the triumph of good over evil. The, the giant message could be, well, this actually stands for the triumph of evil over good, or, or this and that and the other. And it, it's just very interesting that you have this entire quiet genre of pulp fiction that's, that's continued for so long that's saying, actually, it doesn't stand for anything. What Life is life. I, I mean, I guess for a second, thinking about Grimdark, it feels like just saying life is nasty, brutish, and short is now its own thesis statement. Like, in contrast to Lewis or Tolkien or, or everything has significance, like just saying... That's exactly right. The word significance is, is perfect. Um, I, I think that, that makes a lot of sense here. I mean, the Grimdark ones are all looking for meaning, even mm-hmm. if that meaning is, as you say... Nasty, British, and short. Yeah. Whereas in your classic Conan or your uh, classic C.L. Moore or even Fritz Lieber to some degree, or Vance, or, you know, all these sword and sorcery sort of legends, um, mm-hmm. what they're, there isn't significance. That's the entire point that they're, they're trying to make, is that these guys are, are just sort of blundering along and are deliberately trying to take everything at face value. If we have interested, I mean, we've we've thrown out a bunch of titles, but if we have interested people in sword and sorcery, are there any that you would particularly recommend? I would definitely recommend Robert Howard. Uh, I mean, Robert E. Howard's Conan um, and his Solomon Kane. Um, honestly, all of his all of his characters, all of his fiction, really is fantastic. I think C.L. Moore's um, Jurel of Jory, Jurel of Jory. I, you know, it's one of those things you never actually pronounce. Which is sort of a, a sword and sorcery planetary tale. Um, it was either at the same time or immediately after Howard, and has a it's a female author and a female swashbuckling barbarian hero, and absolutely fascinating, both because it's incredibly good and because it's one of those overlooked pioneering volumes. And then skipping forward about eighty years. Gail Simone's run on Red Sonja is just absolutely fantastic. Um, and even for non-comic book readers, I would hardly recommend picking up the, the first or the second collection and just really indulging yourself in it. 
I would add to these recommendations Fritz Lieber's Fofford and the Grey Mouser books and Imaro by Charles Saunders, which moves sword and sorcery into an imagined Africa. Imaro is sometimes heralded as an early exemplar of the sword and soul subgenre, but no matter how you characterize it, it's a great read. Now we'll close, as we do in many episodes, with a favorite book and one with particular emotional resonance. I am frantically spinning around in circles looking at shelves right now, just so you know. Okay, here we go. Uh, this is this is a fairly recent book, but one of my favorites, and it is a, in some senses, um, a sword and sorcery fantasy. So I think it's it's on brief. But that's Rebecca Levine's Smiler's Fair. Ah, oh, yeah. Uh, and and I think, you know, the the big disclaimer here is that um, I consider Bex one of my closest friends, and I think she's she's an absolutely brilliant human being. Although I would never say that to her face. Which makes it all the more of a relief that I can, you know, wholeheartedly, honestly, from the bottom of my heart and soul, say that it is one of my all-time favorite fantasies. And so, when it comes to emotional resonance, you know, first there's just the relief in having one of your friends write a book that you really like. Because, boy, does that take a lot of pressure off. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it's a big, sprawling epic. Um, it's it's a f- first of a four-book series. And... It has that one thing that's just you always want in a fantasy novel more than, more than anything else, especially as a jaded, lifelong reader, which is that element of surprise. And when you are picking up Smiler's Fair and sort of blasting through it, realizing that as I turn each page, I genuinely have no idea what's going to happen next, that the, the rules are all being broken, that the characters are doing absolutely brilliant, twisted interesting, fascinating things, and that the story is just going places that I couldn't predict. And that's absolutely wonderful. And that that sense of surprise and delight and just sort of page-turning glee because you don't know how it's going to end is such a rare and wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on, on top of the fact that it is uh, a whole package of very interesting, incredibly well-developed characters that all have their own secrets and, and pasts and futures, and a very, very, very interesting world where, in effect, good and evil have already fought, and good won. So why is the world so screwed up? Why is the ground poisoned? Why are there monsters everywhere? Because, theoretically, there's, you know, <laughs> the great evil is gone. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and it's, um, it's a really interesting, really surprising novel, and I, I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, and what I can do to make the show better. The website also has a link to the RSS feed for the show, which you can also find on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.